You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Welcome back to another episode of Oil & Gas This Week. We've hit a milestone. We're at episode 150. That's that insane. Jake, it's, a, it's a pretty large number. That means, Jake, we have 50 episodes to try to find a sponsor for us to do a, a live event for our 200th episode since we couldn't get it, pull it together for our 100th episode. Well, now that we're doing the happy hours, I think the uh, the barrier for doing live events should hopefully be a, a lot smaller. So, Yeah. And you know, if you're listening to this show, thank you. Uh, if you're a new listener, welcome aboard. We're glad to have you. If you're an existing listener, thank you for sticking with us. Without our listeners, we would be just Jake and I talking to each other, which would be boring or scary or both. And then we want big shout out again. Want to thank you, Noble, for, for having us come speak. Jake and I went out there and spoke to their, their WAVE, which is their young professionals group. We had a great time, a lot of great feedback. You know, hats off y'all having us out there. We, we would love to come do it again next year. And then if you want to support the show, Two minutes. Two minutes to leave us an iTunes reviews. It's the best way to support the show. We got a couple ones here. We got uh who is a hard one. Nabai. A great job. Thanks for an amazing job you guys are doing. See, that took literally 30 seconds. It was one sentence. It's not even a punctuation there. That's the type of stuff we're looking for. Then we have another one. Great podcast. Easy way to keep up with current events. Mark and Jake do a great job keeping everyone well-informed. Thanks. And that's from RB177. So if you want to be like RB177, leave us a review. It takes a minute or so, and we'll give you a big shout out on the air. And honestly, it helps us support the show. So please, please, please. And if you haven't listened to the HSE show, go listen to it. And leave us a review. That show needs some reviews way more than any other ones. And it's a great show if you're in that HSE world. But this is not an HSE podcast. This is a news podcast. What's going on, Jake, in the news? All right, Mark. $110 billion with a B. And oil and gas projects have been revived as prices have risen. Obviously, we've seen a fluctuate between $70 to $75. So... Higher oil prices, lower offshore development costs, and improved gas demand outlook have made the oil and gas industry more confident in improving investments in projects that have exceeded the total of $110 billion, like as I just said. So to kind of put that in context, the same kind of projects were at about a $50 billion mark in 2016. So that's a dramatic improvement this year over the last past two years. Yeah, that is a huge improvement. I would love to tap into just a piece of $110 billion. But you know what's funny, Jake? That's a huge number, Right. But this industry as a whole is about $4 trillion worth of projects yeah. a year when you look at both land and water. So what's you- really surprised me about this is that 17 deep water projects have been approved in the past 18 months. You know, yeah, especially you- we've, we've talked a lot about how, how expensive it's been and how uneconomical it's been for a lot of the deep water projects. But, you know, I'm guessing that, you know, a lot of the offshore development costs are just shrinking and, and maybe uh, becoming a little bit more economical cool for these operators. Yeah. And so the prices are going down. They're driving efficiencies. The other thing is it's like being a farmer. So if you're a farmer, before you plant, you got to figure out what's going to be the highest paid crop next year. And you got to plant that this year and you don't always get it right. It's the same way with these large operators. They're looking at when do they think demand for these type of crews are going to go up? What is that dollar amount? Because a deep water project, Jake, may take 10 years between the point you first start doing exploration production exploration before you go into production. So they're looking way far ahead and that sounds risky. And honestly it is, but the major operators have gotten really good at it. So they're looking at world demand and they're trying to time it where these projects come online and go into production when that demand makes these things economically viable. And that's nothing new. They, they've been doing this from day one, but they've just gotten better and better every year. The nice thing is though, Jake, the business is picking up. Upstream is picking up, which, which we've been through three years of, 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 you know, 
low prices and layoffs and, and, you know, projects being shut down. It's nice to see it coming back around and, and we knew it would, but you know, it's really nice to see these projects being stood back up and you're going to continue to see this sort of stuff. And then another part of this article that is kind of cool is they're talking about the LNG and all sands projects are also being spooled up. That's, you know, directly related You know, the price of gas is starting to go up globally. We have a great supply of it here in the U S um, we've got a huge ability to ship it all over the world. So all, all good signs from the upstream part side of the industry. And some more good news, I guess, for the industry as a whole. Uh, Carlyle Group, uh, which is one of the, the largest private equity firms in the entire world, uh, is set to raise a $4 billion fund specifically for new uh, oil and gas production acquisition and exploration. Actually, it's more than that. Oh, yeah, it's energy, supply chain, exploration, production assets, refining, marketing, and oil field services. So they're investing across full stream, as we like to call it, which is awesome. There's going to be a ton of new cash flowing into the industry. You want to know something that's not in this article that a lot of people don't know about this? Because I've had some private conversations about this. You know, what they're doing? You, know what, you know what Carla's doing that I think is cool? You know, all of the nationalized funds and the university funds are starting to, you hear grumbling about they need to invest in their energy stocks. And some of the, some of the funds are doing it. They're bowing to public perception or shareholder perception. Cargill has a whole list of, of, universities and governments that say in there diversing themselves of energy funds and they're buying them for pennies on the dollar. <laughs> I love it. I mean, it's, it's actually, it's actually genius. You know, you go find a <laughs> university who's, who's bored and whose sh- shareholders think that it's bad to be invested in oil and gas and they're going to make them sell those assets and Cargill's right there ready to write a check for pennies on the dollar. Genius. So, g- g- but you're right. This is good. $4 billion dumped entire industry is always a good thing. And I'll tell you something about Carla, they don't make bad decisions. You know, when you get to be that big a private equity firm, you know what you're doing. So this is all just a positive sign for our industry and, and funny at the same time. And to capitalize on the growing U.S. exports of uh, to Asia and Europe, Houston-based enterprise products partners is planning to develop an offshore crude export terminal off the Texas Gulf Coast uh, that will be able to fully load the biggest oil tankers in the world capable of carrying 2 million barrels of oil each. So we're not talking about literally on the coast. We're talking about 80 miles off of the coast outside of Houston. Yeah. And so if you don't know Enterprise Product Partners, EPP, they're a pipeline company. They're an infrastructure company. They've done really well. I've known them for a long time. They're huge. This is a little bit different business model for them. So they're not just worried about carrying it to the Gulf Coast. They're now going to be able to take care of the loading and make money on uh, shipping this crude all over the world. And when you get to super tankers this size, this is like multiple football fields, <laughs> super tankers. To do this right takes a lot of engineering prowess, a lot of uh, understanding of the industry. And there's there's a handful of terminals of this size in the world. And it looks like we're getting ready to have one. And of course, we're going to have one right here in Texas, which means there's that- only one in the U.S. right now. Yeah, there's yeah, right. And so the cool thing about this is now our Texas producers can get their product to the global market more efficiently, quicker, and a bigger volume than any other producers in the U.S. once this thing goes live. So this is good for the industry. It's good for Texas. It's good for enterprise product partners. So And look, think of the jobs that will be created just having to build all this stuff. I mean, this is, this is not a small construction project. So good stuff going on, and I'm really glad it's here in Texas. And we can't go an episode without talking about the Permian, obviously. So the, the Permian rush is, is creating a huge frac sand shortage. And so people have been so focused on, on the Permian rush. Uh, and that there's a, a small group of people that have been focused on buying up as much sand in West Texas as possible to uh, supply all the operators throughout there. Fracking, obviously, that's, that's needed. The funny thing is that most of the sand is actually, I think it comes from like Wisconsin or 
No, that's Michigan. right. Wisconsin. Yeah. It's somewhere, somewhere up there, but all of that is that sand that they're getting is, is you know, it's trapped. I think it's like in sandstone or something like that. And in West Texas, we just have just mounds and mounds and mounds and dunes of, of just free sand that they're actually being able to use for fracking. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, and the cool thing about this is it's not just any sand. It has to, the sand has to meet a certain criteria, and that criteria is different for depending on what the operator wants to do uh, as far as, as using frac sand instead of properance. But we talked about this a long time ago. You may not even remember, but I, I predicted that somewhere in the future, once the it start, the price of crude started to come back, there were going to be shortages of frac sand, and that companies that were smart that have capital were already buying up frac sand mines. And that's exactly what's happening here. And what's cool is that instead of trying to capitalize on transporting that sand from other states far away where you have logistics costs, you know, you have to make sure you have rail close by, you have to transfer everything. Here's a group of people that said, you know what, let's see what's in Texas, because now it's literally in our back door with all of the stuff that's going on in the Permian. So good job, smart thing. There's this, there's a, a bottleneck in the, in the market right now for frac sand. That bottlenecks could continue. So the companies that did this right are going to make some really good money. I mean, then once again, that's just prosperity. You know, who would have ever thought that you could make money selling sand? That sounds like a joke. Yep. And there's 23 new frac sand mines being developed in West Texas this year alone. That's just crazy. this year. Isn't that crazy? It's awesome. Yeah. I think there's going to be a lot more of those. All right. Up next, uh, Iran pins an open letter to Saudi Arabia over OPEC supply pact. Uh, so Iran's oil minister told his Saudi Arabian counterpart last month that OPEC supply pact does not give member countries the right to raise oil production above their targets. Yeah. So what you got to be real careful of here and OPEC is in the different countries of OPEC are really good at manipulating this. So what they'll do is they'll say, okay, this is your production goal. And so before the production goal goes in effect, they will increase production by, let's say, 20%. Then when the production goals hit, they go, okay, we have decreased production by 20%, but they're still back at the original number. And so what happens, each country in OPEC reports this differently. And the truth is, it's hard to try to figure out what the heck is really going on as far as production. So what Iran told Saudi Arabia is that they need to have an overarching production or reporting method that takes in real production numbers where each individual country can't fudge the numbers. I don't think they're going to pull it off, Jake. I, there, there's too many internal little political kingdoms in OPEC. And, and literally, I, I literally mean kingdoms. And there's all these tensions internally with the different member o countries OPEC. They don't all like each other. And then when you start putting constraints on production, that means the countries that make a lot of money already are in an okay place. But the countries that aren't making any money get kind of you know screwed in the process. And so I, you know, I've been talking about this for years that I think that the shell revolution has uh, undermined OPEC and destabilized it. Every year, I see more and more signs that happened. This is another sign of that. I, I think that you're going to see violations. I think, I think you can see the OPEC members make commitments. I think you could see them try to come in with a standardized way to record production, which doesn't exist now. I think you can see violations. The big thing is, will they penalize the countries that violate stuff? I don't think they will. We'll see. So let's keep an eye on this one. So Ireland is moving all of its oil reserves out of the UK as Brexit nears so the Irish government has agreed uh, this week to move all of the Republic's oil reserves out of the UK as Ireland is stepping up the preparations for the Brexit. So they're moving 200,000 tons of oil out of British refineries and back into Ireland or other EU member states. Yeah, there's a whole backstory in, into this. A couple of things. So first thing is they're paying for that storage. Right. So now they're going to have to worry about paying for their storage back into their own country. The other thing is, how do you move that much oil? 
It's, this is all super tankers, That's a good question. right? <laughs> yeah. And so when I look at this, the first thing that pops in my head is this may be a negotiation step so that they can actually sell this oil instead of moving it. I, it. When I look at this from a business point of view, I think I could use the Brexit politics to be able to sell my oil that's in the UK to UK buyers as, as a country of Ireland, not have to worry about pulling oil back in, then taking that money and, and doing what I want to with it, which would be basically buy more oil or buy more oil producing facilities. So the other thing that they don't talk about here is Ireland is actually – the government of Ireland has actually come public and said that in the future, they will quit all fossil fuel investments completely, right? And so they've actually had a, a fossil fuel divestment bill passed internally in their internal house, lower house of parliament. I actually kind of hope they do this. France just recently did this as well. And the reason I kind of hope they do this is because it's going to be really funny in about five years where they have to come back in and buy natural gas to produce electric <laughs> generation plant. There's already, you and I talked about this on a past show, there's already one or two companies that see the potential in this and went and bought the fields, the natural gas fields that are right off the coast of both France and Ireland, just waiting, waiting for them to come back and go, we need this to, to provide uh, energy to our people. So interesting move. I think it's a negotiation move. I don't think the Irish government is really trying to move its uh, oil reserves out of the UK. I think it's a way for them to leverage and try to sell it. Once again, this is one of those things I want to kind of keep an eye on because as we get closer to Brexit, you're going to have more and more formal members of the of, of the UK, or, I'm sorry, of the European Union, look at doing this sort of same sort thing and Ireland's can kind of set the precedent for that. Yeah. So just a few days after Libya reopened its eastern oil ports and started to ramp up production that had been offline for a few weeks, production at one of the country's largest oil fields, uh, Sharara, I think that's how you say it, or something like that, uh, is now expected to drop by 160,000 barrels per day after oil workers were abducted on Saturday and oil wells were closed as a precaution. So they they... I guess some uh, unknown armed assailants entered the facilities, kidnapped a bunch of the staff. The Libya's national oil company uh, went and pulled all their, their employees out of the surrounding areas and shut down all the wells. So that's a ton of money that they're losing. Well, I guess I guess it's a good good time to kind of take a moment and appreciate the fact that whenever you go to work every day, you're most likely not going to be abducted. Yeah, how, you know, I think we kind of have it pretty nice. Yeah. I mean – Audience, think about that. Imagine going to work and having to worry about somebody kidnapping you. You know, we're very lucky here that we don't have to worry about that. It goes on in the rest of the world and it goes on way more than you would think it is. But this is actually hurting Libya. There's so many different political factions fighting over all that stuff that really somebody needs to step in and, and bring in, you know, probably some foreign troops, maybe partner with you know, the Marine Corps has a long, bad history of Libya, unfortunately, but, you know, maybe bring in some outside troops to help protect these workers and get that production up in a safe manner. This is one of the reasons that a lot of the large European and American companies don't want to invest money over there is this sort of stuff. Exactly. I mean, Shell or Exxon is not going to take a chance of its people getting adopted. So until they can uh, give physical security to those fields, you're not going to get the investment that they need to rebuild the infrastructure and increase production. So, you know, hopefully the Libyan government's looking hard at this and has figured out that they can't handle this on their own and they need some help from, from, from the outside. So, you know, let's, you know, a prayer for all those people that were abducted. Let's hope they get back to their family safe and sound. Yep. All right. So I don't know what I don't know what to think about this next article. Russia is planning to invest. I've seen two different numbers. I've seen here's the low number: fifty billion dollars into Iran's oil and gas industry, and then I think I saw today it was like sixty four billion dollars. So a fourteen billion dollar difference between those two numbers. Uh, but investing that money into uh, Iran's oil and gas industry, you know, they're looking. These countries are both drawing closer and closer and creating more and more ties, just as the United States is looking to cut as much Iranian crude oil exports from the market as possible. So is this our own doing? 
I think so. I think we've kind of created this vacuum and Russia's kind of scooped in and said, hey, sure, we'll give you you $50 billion. You know what's interesting? If I didn't know better, I'd swear that you and I talked about this beforehand and placed this one after the uh, employee abductions. So a big part of this is Iran is partnering with Russia to get their military support so they can protect their investments and their their infrastructure. That's a huge thing. Iran just does not have the military that it needs to protect its own infrastructure inside its own country, which is scary. So that's part of this. But Iran also needs technical expertise and they can get that technical expertise from the u.s they can get it from europe or they can get it from russia and they chose russia and that's just based upon the geopolitics that are going on right now in the world uh, you know and i've said this a hundred times i i have an issue with russia working with middle eastern companies i'd really rather russia partner with us and and you know if you've watched the news in the last day or two our current administration has just made a historic meeting uh, with the Russians. The, our American press and European press didn't like the way it turned out. Quite honestly, it was kind of bizarre to me watching. I don't even know what to say yet. I don't know you know, what to even think about that yet. But this is why Russia's uh, investing money with Iran. It's a good return on their investment. They have now all of a sudden they'll have market on the other side of the world. Iran needs the military protection and, and strength that Russia brings to the table and also their technology, te- technological expertise. So it makes sense from Iran and Russia's point of view. I just really wish things were different. I wish we were doing more stuff cooperative with Russia. So knock on wood. Let's see maybe in the future that will change. Yep. Uh, next, a billionaire. Actually, he's not a billionaire. He's the richest man in all of Africa. His name's uh, Aliko Dangoti. I had to like watch a video ten times to get his name down. Um, <laughs> so he made his fortune out of semen and food processing. Like I said, he's now Africa's richest person. Uh, but he's embarking on a bigger challenge. He's making a fifteen billion dollar investment in oil and gas and petrochemicals that he hopes. If he's able to pull it off, could completely transform Nigeria's economy. So he's building one of the world's largest uh, oil refineries near Lagos, and he's constructing also a fertilizer factory on the same site and plans to boost gas supplies to the city, which is Africa's largest. So, And then once that's done, he wants to buy enough oil fields to pump one quarter of a million barrels of crude a day. Yeah. So, Jake, do you know why he's building a fertilizer factory there? Why? Because most of the fertilizer in the world, the ammonia component of fertilizer comes from natural gas. So a lot of people know this. Depending on who you talk to and whose numbers you believe, between 60 and 70% of the entire world is fed with fertilizer made from natural gas. So that's why he's building it. Nobody thinks of fertilizer as a downstream product of, of the oil and gas industry, but it is. So that's why he's doing this. This is really interesting. It's because the cost here isn't building the refinery. The cost is literally, there's, there's literally zero infrastructure in place. I mean, there's he has to go through swamps and mountains. There's no roads. They have to build bridges. There's no cranes. There's no electricity. It's it's amazing. This is the first new or what's called a greenfield refinery in Nigeria in I think over 30 or 40 years because this the logistics nightmare. So the kind of cool thing about this is that because this is all greenfield, so there's nothing out there whatsoever, if he builds this the infrastructure that they build, the roads and the bridges and everything will also be a moneymaker for them. So they will have tolls. So he will make money. He will build the infrastructure, which will then allow him to build the refinery and the fertilizer factory and increase production to the city. At the same time, everybody that uses new infrastructure has to pay him money as well. It's actually pretty smart. This is one of those things where you look at your 
internal cost of capital. So he's putting $15 billion of his own money into this. How much does it cost him to loan himself $15 billion? And then how quickly will he make that money back? He's been doing this way longer than anybody else I know in Nigeria. He's also a billionaire, which Jake, you and I haven't quite made it there yet. So I'm sure he knows what he's doing. It will be interesting to watch on whether to see the monetization of the infrastructure is more important to him than the actual refinery. Yeah. Let's keep our eyes on this and see how it develops over the next year. Cool. Up next, uh, this article is talking about one of the things that we've talked about a million times through First Friday Q&A, through all of the articles, through all of the speaking engagements. I actually talked with the head of HR of Noble Energy for two seconds before we spoke, and she also mentioned this is an issue for them. Um, so we're seeing industry-wide, you know, the, the companies are coming out and saying, we don't have enough young talent. We're not able to attract some of the best millennial talent out there. And, and what do we mean by that? So it's not just necessarily petroleum engineers and geologists and landmen and stuff like that, but you know, it, it is attracting maybe some of the, the top talent that has been developed in Silicon Valley. You know, it could be people, it doesn't necessarily need to be tech people either. It could be, you know, somebody who worked for a, a tech company in Silicon Valley and they were, they were head of HR. And so now that they, they know how to recruit you know, some of the best talent, maybe attracting them to our industry. So that's what this article dives into. And then it kind of goes off on another a side tangent talking about, well, you know, obviously we have this huge age gap between, you know, the younger generation coming in and the older guys. And there's that big uh, age gap of all the people who got burned in one of the downturns. And now they've left the industry will probably never come back. And so the question becomes, how do we get the knowledge from our more mature colleagues and retain that and make it available for others to use? Because the information that these old guys have, you know, I say old guys, I should say more mature and more experienced people in the industry uh, have is, is, is invaluable, right? It's completely priceless. And if there's some way that we can capture that, these companies can capture that and use that to train up or use it as a resource for their newer uh, their newer hires, that's going to prove so, so, so valuable for the organization as a whole, right? Yeah. And what's funny, I laughed if y'all, the mic, if y'all heard me on the mic when Jake was talking. Whenever Jake and I are in person, which is actually really rare, whenever he says the old guys in the industry, he always looks at me. <laughs> it just cracks me up. <laughs> so first thing, Jake, this is in a Houston Business Journal, Good Find Here, is written by Joshua Mann. Joshua, do you listen to the podcast, dude? I swear, this looks like it came out of what Jake and I have been talking about for, for two years now. But Joshua, I'm just kind of kidding. This is very well written, and it's very true. The oil and gas industry as a whole is facing this talent shortage that it cannot escape. It's coming at us like a freight train. We cannot get out of the way. We're going to have to deal with it, whether we want to or not. And there's no secret island of talent. There's no secret place where you can go buy a bunch of engineers or project managers or whatever. And then when you layer on top of that, the public perception issues that we've caused ourselves, no young person wants to come work in this industry unless they're from Houston or Rio or Kongsburg or something. So it's an enormous problem. It's going to drive innovation. It's going to drive efficiencies because we just not going to have the manpower that we're used to having, which is a good thing, but we still need people. And so Jake and I, and actually the whole oil and gas global network as an organization, one of our charters is to help spread the good word of the oil and gas industry, right? This is a great industry to work for. So we do care about the planet. We are measured more on environmental impact than any other industry I know. We make good things happen. We bring prosperity to the world. But as an industry, we never tell that story. And now we're in this position where large oil and gas companies are being sued for climate change, which is ridiculous. And nobody wants to come work here. If you're listening out there and you work for a company that wants to help us make a difference, reach out to me. I'm being very serious here. We want to start the oil and gas corporate social responsibility podcast. That may not be the end name, of, but basically nobody else is telling the good story of what we're doing. So ExxonMobil. 
If you work for ExxonMobil, your country spends more money than anybody fighting malaria. Nobody knows that. Chevron, your company spends more money fighting AIDS. Nobody knows that. Shell, BP, uh, FMC Technologies, Halliburton, Schlumberger, y'all do so much for the communities all over the world that you operate in. Nobody knows that. Let us tell that story. So I'm not, I'm not trying to sell anything. I'm just saying that this is a huge problem that this industry as a whole has not addressed. Our industry organizations, things like API, they have not addressed this. And so we want to, All Gas Global Network wants to address this, but we need a partner for that exact podcast. So if you want to help us spread the good word of our industry, which then will change the mind of young people and they want to come work here, uh, reach out to me. But this is this is this talent shortage is enormous. You know, Jake, in my 20 some odd years in this industry, I've never seen this happen. In this article, they're talking about whether the old guys are gonna come back or not. They're not. This is one of the things that's different about this downturn. So we've lost that talent, we've lost that knowledge, we've lost that experience. And if you're a company out there, if you haven't figured out a way to attract and retain this new younger talent group, you're going to get left behind. And if you're a company out there that has figured out, you could pass up your competitors. So good article, 100% dead on. Jake and I talk about this all the time. You know, I'm really hoping that that we're able to help play a part in that and, and help start the world's young people understanding that the oil and gas industry is actually really cool and fun and sexy to work for. Yep, 100% agree. So we got one last article, and we'll uh, we'll close out this episode today. Offshore services provider Tidewater said on Monday it would buy a smaller uh, rival Gulf Mark offshore in an all-stock deal to create a $1.25 billion company. It's the latest consolidation we're seeing spurred by the recovery of oil prices. Recently, we saw London-based offshore rig operator Ensco uh, last year bought a uh, smaller rival Atwood Oceanics and a deal valued at $839 million, while the world's biggest drilling rig operator, Transocean, bought Norway's uh, Sanga Offshore for $1.1 billion. So if that doesn't say that offshore is coming back or at least seeing some kind of consolidation, not, you know, I think that's a, it's a good thing. No, it's an awesome thing. I do think it's funny. It's um, when I talk to business leaders from other industries outside of oil and gas, and I mentioned something like what's mentioned here, they bought the smaller company at $839 million. Other people go, that's a small company in oil and gas. I go, yeah, $839 million yeah. is a small company. But yeah, this consolidation was expected. You and I have talked about this probably close to two years ago that it was coming. It's happening. It's good for the industry. It's going to drive efficiencies. In this case, we're going to have a, a much more productive, faster, more horsepower rig fleet. Same way with the transport ships out there. We're going to be able to scrap a lot of stuff that's slower and less effective and bring newer stuff to market. So all good stuff. And then speaking of all good stuff, if you would like one of these Red Wing offshore bags, which are really awesome, and we get offered cash for them all the time, they become a cult item. It's ridiculously simple. You can win one. No purchase necessary. You go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Put your information in there. See official sites for rules and details, and we give away one lucky winner week. And Jake, something I keep meaning to do on every podcast and I keep forgetting is if you're listening to this, we have show notes. Poor little Julie has to take everything that Jake and I talk about and she spends the time to build show notes. If you go to oilandgasthisweek.com, go to the page for this this podcast. Everything we talk about is there and you can just click on it. I get a lot of people reach out to me and say, hey, can you give me the links for this or the links for that? Or what's the links for the Red Wing uh, offshore bag giveaway? And it's all there and it's there every week. So we have show notes. One of the things, Jake, that we need to work on is figure out a way to get the show notes in, in the mobile app. So in iTunes, I know there's a way to do it, but but we'll work on that once we figure out how to produce a podcast on a regular basis. <laughs> Now we're at the weekly rig count by Drilling Info. What does that look like, Jake? 
1,129. So we're not up, we're not down, we're just the same. That's a good place to be. Events on deck, we'll talk about a bit about our happy hour that we've been doing. It's been blowing up in our face. It's really cool. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. We do the, it's the last Tuesday of every month here in Houston. When in this case be Tuesday 31st, you can go to Eventbrite and sign up. We cap it out at about 200 people. Great food. We just picked up Carbach as a, a, a drink sponsor, so we have great beer from a local brewery. We're doing some really cool stuff. Jake and Colin do a great job of bringing in some very smart people to talk about some cool stuff. But we want to take this happy hour out. We want to grow it. So we're looking to go into every place there's oil in the U.S. So Dallas, San Antonio, Austin, Lafayette, Louisiana, New Orleans, Denver, blah, blah, blah. If you're in any of those cities and you want to help us, if you have a facility that you'll let us use and you'll get all those people at your facility to see what you're doing, if you let us use it for happy hour, let me know. The other thing is we're looking for sponsors. It's $455 to be a sponsor. So it's probably the best marketing return on your investment for literally almost no money at all. Reach out to me about that as well. If you want to sponsor the Houston happy hour, we'll put a link and you can contact Julie. She takes care of that. That's going really well. We're still accepting sponsors. I believe we're sponsored for most of this year, if not all of it, but 2019, we're taking sponsors for that. And then, you know, if you listen to this any length of time, you know that Jake and I talk often about speaking places. If you want us to come speak at your company, your uh, marketing organization, your sales, re- whatever, let us know. Jake and I'd be happy to share the details with you. And then we do this first Friday Q&A where the first Friday of every month we take the questions that people ask us and we do a show. It's actually become a more popular segment. Just go to uh, oilandgasthisweek.com, go to click ask a question and uh, put your question in there. If we use your question on the air, we'll give you a big shout out. While you're there, just give us your email address. We won't spam you, but we'll make sure that you're notified of the stuff we're doing in the future. And then join the LinkedIn group. LinkedIn's getting better. We have Owen Glass Global Network LinkedIn group. Go join that as well. And then if you don't mind, share the show. If you work for a company and you have other people maybe interested, let them know about the show. It'd be a big, big favor to us. And we'd appreciate it very much. Uh, Jake, anything else we need to talk about? Man, that, that covers everything. All right, folks, remember, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.